This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment. Your time to shine. Your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career. And you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum, and this is our not-so-vanilla-vanilla episode. That's right. We're we're tackling vanilla, and we're going to talk about why uh, vanilla's got kind of a bad (laughs) connotation to it as being boring and bland. Right. It's not at all. No, 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 no. Uh, And thank you to listener Gina for suggesting. She also sent in a book suggestion, Vanilla Queen. We really need to start up the Food Stuff book club. Oh, yeah. Our, our list of books is long and ever-growing. Yeah, because I don't read about food enough. No. Let's definitely start a book club. No. Oh, it would be delightful, though. Okay, all right. So, vanilla. Yes. First. Oh. Yes. Oh, indeed. And most importantly, it's the flavor of America's favorite ice cream. Ah. Yeah, which I found a little surprising. But according to the International Ice Cream Association, so I I guess they would know, Mm -hmm. 29% of Americans favor vanilla, followed by chocolate with an 8.9%. Wow. I guess it's spread after after vanilla out along many categories of ice cream flavor. My favorite, if I had to like choose a general one, is chocolate. And my little brother's was vanilla. And we used to get in some pretty serious arguments about it because I'd be trying to convince him why he was wrong. (laughs) Like, you're just wrong. <laughs> it's well, chocolate like, involves vanilla flavoring, and it's, it's also got chocolate flavoring. Exactly, right? It's science. It's it's scientifically proven that mm-hmm. you're wrong. Bobby, <laughs> if you're listening. Um, <laughs> so, vanilla, it's a species of the orchid family. Mm-hmm. The bean itself comes from a seed pod of the evergreen climbing orchids that sort of look like vines. 
Vines that can reach up to 105 feet or 32 meters. Yeah. Yeah. The kind we get in stores specifically comes from one of three species, the largest share being vanilla planifolia, a.k.a. Mexican or bourbon vanilla. But you can find vanilla tahitness, a.k.a. Tahiti vanilla, and sometimes vanilla pompona, a.k.a. West Indian vanilla. Uh, about three-fourths of the vanilla we buy today comes from Madagascar and Réunion, which is an island off the coast of Madagascar. It used to be named Bourbon, hence Bourbon Vanilla. Oh, that's I, why. Okay. I have always wondered that. Um, it also does have a little bit of a bourbon-y flavor to it. Yeah, it kind of does. Yeah. Most of the rest of our vanilla supply comes from Mexico and Tahiti. Yeah. The main flavor compound in vanilla is called vanillin. Huh. Uh, and uh, it can be created in labs pretty cheaply and easily, but there are over 250 flavor and aroma compounds in vanilla pods. Uh, experts talk about vanilla's terroir. Yeah. So much terroir happening in these episodes. There are. Uh, Tahitian vanilla has notes of uh, cherry, florals, smoke, and marshmallow. Madagascar vanilla has notes of rum and bourbon, prunes, and wood. And uh, Mexican is a little bit more subtle. Of a vanilla, uh, it's got notes of wood, spice, and nutmeg. And McCormick, I'm sure most of you have heard of this. It's like that company. One just, of the brands of yeah. spices and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they sell vanilla, and they have um, <laughs> a chart, a vanilla tasting chart. And it's like a big wheel, and I spent far too much time reading, like, all of the descriptions. And, I mean, a vanilla tasting. Why is that not a thing? Oh. Can it be a thing? Let's make it a thing. Okay. There aren't too many orchids you can eat, but this happens to be one of them. It's a bit sensitive of a plant as well. It needs to be in a tropical or subtropical climate. Like, seriously, it's not able to grow 10 to 20 degrees north or south of the equator. Or it's only able to grow there. <laughs> yes. Yes. Outside of that. <laughs> Otherwise, that would be like... A lot of vanilla. No, we're, we're looking at the different, the opposite problem. It's yeah. native to the Caribbean and parts of South and Central America. And the blooming season lasts a couple of months with a handful of fragile flowers of green or yellow or white blossoming each day. The flowers are so fragile that they can only be pollinated naturally in the wild by a species of melipon bee, are possibly the Euglossian bees. These are tiny little bees, and maybe birds uh, can pollinate them too. But either way, these pollinators only exist in Mexico, which means that vanilla beans grown elsewhere must be hand-pollinated. They are very often hand-pollinated in Mexico too to ensure uh, production quantities. Some expert farmers say that as few as five of the flowers on any given plant should be pollinated in order to achieve the best quality fruit. Mm. Oh, and uh, did we mention the flower is only open one day a year? One day a year. One morning a year, in fact. Ah. Yes. The flowers close by the afternoon, and if they weren't pollinated in that teeny tiny window, so long. They, just, the f- they just fall off and die. Yeah. Yeah, no fruit. That's, That's it. wild to me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. The, the flowers themselves, by the way, are very neutrally scented. Yes. The fruit part, as the name pod implies, looks pretty pod-like, reaching up to 8 inches or 20 centimeters, generally over a month to a month and a half long period. But it could be much longer, like nine months. Um, farmers harvest them when they're an unripe greenish-goldish color. 
And at that point, they're pretty bland. Their their flavor and characteristic rich brown color is developed during this whole post-harvest curing process that depends on heat and enzymes in the beans and bacteria poop, maybe. Oh, Lauren. Oh, every time it's exciting. Okay. So um, after vanilla beans are harvested, they go through this production process of of cooking, sweating, drying, and curing. And uh, growers around the world have developed different methods. But but basically, first you uh, sort the pods by length, then soak them in hot water or expose them to heavy sunlight to reach an internal temperature of about 65 degrees Celsius, or uh, that's about 150 degrees Fahrenheit, to kill the beans, um, stopping any potential growth processes and uh, killing off most uh, bacteria or fungi that might be floating around in there. Um, You then sweat them, meaning you keep the beans hot and not too dry and well covered at around like 50 degrees Celsius, a.k.a. 120 Fahrenheit. This lets a number of enzymatic processes begin to happen inside the beans. Their their cellular structures begin breaking down. It also allows a few heat-tolerant bacteria to thrive. You then dry the beans out very, very slowly. You want them to decrease to about 15 to 25% of their original water weight, depending on their size and quality. And depending on the farming traditions, this may be done by setting the beans out in the sun for a single hour every day. Wow. It's really intensive. The final step is conditioning or curing the beans by uh, keeping them warm and kind of slightly humid. And this continues the flavor and aroma development process. Once they're cured, vanilla beans can keep for like two to ten years, depending on how careful you are about it. And all of this research is being done into the role of those heat-resistant bacteria in the development of these flavors. Um, Tests and cultures taken from a few different bean processors around the world have found differing populations of bacteria, but a few strains of bacillus were commonly dominant. And scientists think that the bacteria play a role in, uh, in helping break down cellular structures of the vanilla beans, thus releasing some of the compounds or precursors, precursors to the compounds that give vanilla all of its flavor and aroma. Um, the bacteria might also help process some of those precursors into their final forms, and they might help keep the temperature of the curing beans warm enough to prevent the growth of unwanted fungi and bacteria. The, uh, the whole shebang takes like five to eight months and is just super persnickety. Um, these traditional manual methods uh, are still used by many farmers and production firms mixed in with a little bit of like modern sterilization and climate control technologies, depending on the, the size and the swagger of the operation. Um, you have to keep careful track of each individual vanilla bean pods development. Like any sign of mold growth will send a bean all the way back to the killing stage. <laughs> My goodness. Because of all the time and work vanilla takes, it's the second costliest spice at around $300 a pound. Ooh, what's What's the first? Oh, I'm glad you asked. It's saffron. Saffron. Oh, of course, saffron. Of course. Oh, oh, whole other episode. (laughs) Yep. Vanilla powder is what you get after grinding whole vanilla beans, and vanilla extract is chopped up and macerated beans aged in solution to bring out the flavor. According to the FDA, to qualify as pure vanilla extract, there needs to be 13.35 ounces of vanilla beans for every gallon uh, while extraction is happening and 35% alcohol. Uh, that primary flavor compound, vanillin, makes up only 1-2% to of any given vanilla bean. Most of this processing happens in factories outside of the countries that actually produce vanilla. 
which has traditionally meant that the farmers who do the bulk of the labor see a minority of the profits. That's uh, starting to change, but it is slow going, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Thanks in part to the need to add flavor to low-carb or low-fat products, and in part because we just love it. Vanilla, our vanilla flavoring, to be more precise, is in over 18,000 products. Worldwide, yeah. Mm -hmm. And about that flavoring thing. Yeah. (laughs) 99% of bulk products with vanilla in the name, you know, your vanilla wafers, your vanilla pudding, even your cheap vanilla vodka, they don't contain the real thing. No orchids were harmed in the Mm -hmm. making of those products. Nope. That's in part at least because the labor intensiveness and priciness of vanilla, which means we don't actually produce a whole lot of it, about 2,000 metric tons. may sound like a lot, but in the face of vanilla demand, it really isn't. The the synthetic (laughs) stuff, we produce over 20,000 metric tons of that a year. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Uh, The balance between naturally and synthetically sourced vanillin is changing, though, due to that whole marketing and or consumer push toward all-natural ingredients. In the past five years, consumer interest has pushed huge companies like Nestle and Hershey's to switch back to naturally sourced vanillin, which has driven the cost of vanilla beans up to more than 10 times what it used to be. Whew. Imitation vanilla, by the way, is entirely composed of the ever-mysterious artificial flavorings. Uh, okay, okay, so in... Vanilla beans, you get a molecule of vanillin by breaking down a, a sugary molecule of, of glucovanillin. But there are lots of other ways to get the same molecule. You can use uh, yeast or bacteria to, to ferment like an oil from cloves or this acid from rice bran. If they're fed one of these things, these specialized and often proprietary microorganisms basically poop vanillin. Um, <laughs> those are considered natural vanillin. You can also uh, heat and pressure treat an alcohol that comes from spruce trees to produce vanillin. As of the 1990s, a lot of the world's vanillin was actually a byproduct of the wood pulp and paper industries. Uh, And you can synthesize vanillin in a lab using an oil that's a byproduct of the petroleum industry. Those last two are considered artificial, and the petroleum version is the cheapest of the lot by far, especially since wood and paper industries have been working to reduce waste over the past couple decades. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading ahead in the outline, and I'm very glad. I was hoping that you would answer this question. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so, so I heard that the artificial stuff is made from beaver butt glands. Is that true? Is it? No. Oh. Well, there you go. Well, okay. Well, it is true that beavers produce a kind of vanilla-scented substance in a gland near the base of their tails, but... Believe it or not, it's not actually financially viable to milk beaver glands at a rate that would satisfy the world's interest in flavoring. <laughs> I know. Weird. Uh, <laughs> the, um, this, this stuff is called uh, castorium, and beavers use it to mark their territory and to impress humans by smelling just absolutely lovely. Beavers smell really nice. I had no idea. Me neither. Castorium did see some use in the 1800s as a perfume ingredient and occasional food additive, uh, especially during the time when Beaver fur was just all the rage in fashion, and so they were thus being hunted in large numbers. And it does still show up sometimes in the fragrance industry, but it's pretty uncommon. Well, there you go. Question answered. (laughs) I'm sure all of you are waiting to know. Yes. (laughs) In ice cream, which actually does play a big part in the story of vanilla, apart from the silly poll we wanted to throw in there, um, taste testers can tell the difference between vanilla and vanillin the former being more distinct and flavorful than the latter, which often ended up with the descriptor 
bland or non-distinct attached to it. However, in things like cakes that are heated, tasters generally couldn't tell the difference. Huh. Yeah. Oh, and I did want to put in here that vanilla ice cream is one of the few products here in the U.S. that the FDA says must contain natural vanilla if it doesn't want to have to specify artificial vanilla in its name. I was at the grocery store today and I I noticed this. Yeah. And also uh, so many things claiming to have flecks of vanilla beans in there. Anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. with our notorious (laughs) sweet tooth is the largest importer of vanilla on average 5.4 grams a person, which comes out to 638 million vanilla beans a year. Yeah. Okay. So that's a lot. That's the intro. Yeah. Oh, welcome. This is one of those long and twisty outlines that I'm just like, oh, goodness. You never know where an outline will take you. Yeah. Well, except we do know where it's going to take us. Well, first of all, because we wrote it. And second of all, because right now it's taking us towards a quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. All right. Let's let's look at history of vanilla. It's it's hard to pin down. It's a difficult one, right? Yeah, because vanillin does not leave behind a chemical residue like chocolate does. Thank mm. you, chocolate. Um, huh. That being said, here's what historians have pieced together about vanilla's history. So, the Maya in the southeast of Mexico and Central America were the first to grow vanilla for use as a <laughs> cacao flavoring as as far back as 6000 BCE. 
Uh, that's mostly for uh, for cocoa as a drink uh, sweetened mm-hmm. with honey. And uh, researchers think that vanilla was originally reserved for people of very high political position. Ooh. Uh, they put ground-up vanilla orchid in necklaces to ward off illness or other bad health stuff. They used it as a fragrance, a stimulant, an insect repellent, a medicine, mixed it with copal resin, and burned it as an incense. And, of course, an aphrodisiac. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> However, the Totonac people in Veracruz, Mexico, are often cited as the first to cultivate vanilla beans and to figure out that they became more flavorful when sweated, primarily for medicinal use. When the Aztecs took over the Totonac in the 15th century, the Totonac were forced to pay tribute to the Aztecs in the form of thousands and thousands of vanilla beans, Ah. which they called black flower after what happens to the flower once the fruit is harvested. Unlike the Totonac, the Aztec used vanilla for flavor, especially in the chocolate drink cacao that they called chocolatl. Did I say that correctly? I think so. Excellent. (laughs) <laughs> the Totonac believed that vanilla was a gift from the gods and a source of eternal happiness. Their mythology included the tale of how the vanilla orchid came to be that goes something like this. Once upon a time, hmm. Princess Zanat fell head over heels in love. Her father refused to allow her, allow her to marry said love, however, on account of him being a puny mortal. Oh. Oh. So the couple eloped. Yay! No, not yay. Not, no, goodness. No, because they both were captured and their heads were chopped clean off. Their blood soaked into the earth, and from that spot grew the first vanilla orchid. The Totonacs saw it as their duty to take care of and protect these vines and to make them productive (laughs) through the marriage of vanilla, which is a more pleasant way of saying pollination. (laughs) That's a lovely myth. Yeah. It, well, I mean, I mean, there's heads getting chopped off. I mean, but... not for the two people involved, but it's sort of sweet. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> when the Spanish arrived in 1519, a frequent foodstuff cameo Hernan Cortez ran into it at Veracruz, and he also ran into the Totonac. Some sources say that Montezuma served Cortez cacao in 1520, while others say that the Totonac teamed up with the Spanish to overthrow the Aztecs. Either way... Vanilla's name comes from the Spanish vanilla, which translates to little pod or in Latin vagina. Ah, there's actually a lot of references to vagina, including uh, the nine months, the possible nine months it takes. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Anyway, well, I think we come back to that. Okay, perfect. <laughs> um, around this time, vanilla was introduced to Asia and Africa, courtesy of the Spanish and Portuguese. And by introduced to, we almost certainly mean smuggled out to, because, uh, yeah, a, a lot of the, the Mexican peoples were trying to keep a lockdown on that kind of thing. Yes, they absolutely were. Cortez brought vanilla back with him to Europe, and in 1529, the first written description of vanilla was penned by Bernardino de Sahagún and Bernal Diaz. Europeans were totally into adding vanilla into hot chocolate as a replacement for cinnamon once they accepted hot chocolate, which did take a minute. Yeah. One Spanish fellow dubbed it a drink for pigs. Wow. I know. It's just hot chocolate. Okay. Right? Sure. That's so, such strong emotion. They also <laughs> mixed it with tobacco and used it as a nerve stimulant and, surprise, an aphrodisiac. Some historians think partly due to the vagina Latin root word, which is the saddest reason ever to... To use something as an aphrodisiac? Yeah. Well, I guess it's not the saddest reason ever, oh, sure. but it's not a great reason. No. Um, <laughs> it's not very well founded. No. no. In 1602, with hopes of appeasing Queen Elizabeth I's sweet tooth, her apothecary... 
head of the apothecary. Yes. Uh, Hugh Morgan came up with sweet meats flavored solely with vanilla. Queen Elizabeth loved them, which meant that other people wanted to try them, which led to vanilla spreading throughout Europe. Alcoholic beverages, tobacco, and perfumes got the vanilla treatment in the 1700s. In 1754, we get the first recorded use of the word vanilla from botanist Philip Miller's book, The Gardener's Dictionary. Mm -hmm. A little less than 10 years later, in 1762, a German physician named Bazar Zimmermann published a work that claimed that after 342 impotent men drank vanilla, they, quote, changed into astonishing lovers of at least as many women. Hmm. Huh. Interesting study. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was so popular as an aphrodisiac. It, it, it was like the one it for was, a long time. You know? Uh, <laughs> it's also, I, if, if, we're, if we're kind of plotting a foodstuff bingo card. and uh, Oh, yeah. And I think aphrodisiac has to be on there. It, it absolutely does. Around 1800, a French priest smuggled an orchid out of Mexico. Yes, smuggled intrigue. Uh, Spanish-controlled Mexico had a monopoly on vanilla, and the plants were under an export ban. But uh, this guy got them out to Tahiti, and from there the French would try to cultivate them in multiple locations throughout the Pacific and Indian Oceans. Vanilla intrigue. (laughs) And this brings us to someone else who makes a frequent cameo in Foodstuff episodes. But first... One last break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes. So you'll never guess who's coming up again. 
Oh, you probably will. Yeah. It's Thomas Jefferson. Oh, yeah. Yep. In his many gallivants across France, he encountered ice cream flavored with vanilla, which had by then spread to much of Europe with the help of Queen Elizabeth I. Jefferson loved the stuff so much, he even wrote down a recipe for vanilla ice cream, fairly similar to how we make it today, that you can find in the Library of Congress. Oh, man. Jefferson brought back waffles and vanilla ice cream and wine jellies from France. Oh. He's, I like, despite a number of other things, I would have totally gone to his parties. Like... A waffle frolic oh. with vanilla ice cream on the side yeah. and some wine jellies to help you loosen up a bit. Yeah. That's a lot of sugar, but that- <laughs> it'd be fun at first. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, you, you didn't have Netflix back then. You had to make your own fun. It's true. Also, he got the pods from Paris, but they probably originally came from Central America. So, Yeah. <laughs> In 1805, Vanilla pops up in its first cookbook, and it's one we've talked about before, Hannah Glass's The Art of Cookery. It basically called for adding vanilla to hot chocolate. And if you're seeing a theme here, vanilla and chocolate, vanilla and hot chocolate, it was used to cut, like, the bitterness. Right, right. Yeah, it was a popular way to cut the bitterness. Uh, Without needing to add too much sugar. Exactly, because sugar was expensive, expensive, right. Um, Another cookbook we've mentioned, Mary Randolph's 1824, The Virgin Housewife. It's not The Virgin Housewife. It is The Virginia Housewife. I just have a aphrodisiac on the brain. (laughs) It came with the first (laughs) written American recipe for vanilla ice cream. Mm. And Europeans, of course, were attempting to grow their own vanilla, but they found the seeds they produced weren't flavorful due to the Totonac successfully keeping the process of curing a secret. And also because the bee needed for vanilla pollination couldn't be found in Europe, or at least the bee we think needed for vanilla pollination. Um, Europe's increasing demand for vanilla, which they nicknamed chocolate drug, caused depletion of wild vanilla. And as a result, the Totonac built vanilla farms in the 1760s. All of these things allowed them to maintain their position as the primary producer of vanilla from the 1760s to the 1840s. Europeans were determined, however, to find a way to cultivate their own flavorful vanilla. In 1819, some Frenchmen sent vanilla beans to the French-controlled Réunion and Mauritius Islands, crossing their fingers they'd grow there. Years later, in 1841, on the island of Réunion, 12-year-old slave Edmund Albius figured out hand pollination. Jean-Michel Claude Richard, a famous French botanist, immediately took credit, um, immediately, uh, for teaching Albius this method. Of course. Uh-huh. And in later recountings of the story, some papers claimed Albius was white. <laughs> when slavery was abolished in 1848, an impoverished Albius died soon after. So he didn't make any money off of... What was basically like the invention that made vanilla possible. Right. Yeah. This also means that possibly most of our vanilla supply can be traced back to that first cutting of a vanilla orchid from Paris's Jardin de Plan. Possibly. Uh, which is cool to think. The discovery of hand pollination was the catalyst for several things. Mm-hmm. First, it toppled Mexico's monopoly of the vanilla trade. Second, the French sent vanilla orchids first to the Comoros Islands and then to Madagascar with instructions on how to cultivate them. The production of vanilla in these locations sailed past Mexico's by 1879, and it only took until 1898 for them to supply 80% of the world's vanilla, 200 metric tons worth. There were other factors that contributed to Mexico's loss of their lead in the trade. Uh, Around that time, its coastal rainforests were being stripped bare by the tropical wood industry. Uh, Cedar and mahogany trees were part of vanilla orchids, natural climbing habitat, and suddenly all of that was gone. 
Yeah. And this just so happened to coincide with an exponential increase in demand for vanilla as it solidified its place as the preferred ice cream flavor and with the 1886 introduction of a little beverage you might have heard of. Coca-Cola. What? Mm-hmm. It's part of that secret recipe? It is. It's one of the few things. So is cinnamon. Uh, one of the few things that they will uh, admit is in there. Uh, yep, the esteemed brain tonic and intellectual beverage called for vanilla. Vanilla was added to all kinds of things as the availability of it increased. Stepping back a bit. Joseph Burnett soaked some vanilla beans in grain, alcohol, and water in 1847 and got vanilla extract. And German scientists isolated the first synthetic vanilla, that vanillin, in 1874 from cheaper sources like Cavanaugh. Yay! Yeah, sure. Yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, in a case of too little too late, the Academy of Sciences and Gastronomic Arts recognized the Totonac for their role in bringing vanilla and the process behind cultivating it to the world in 1921. Oh. I mean, yeah. They did a really good job keeping it hidden for a while. Um, By some estimates, by the time 1932 came around, 75 to 80 percent of all ice cream in the U.S. was vanilla. Oh, wow. Yeah. A typhoon led to a substantial increase in vanilla's market price in the 70s, a price level they maintained until the cartel that had controlled vanilla's pricing and distribution of vanilla since the 1930s fell apart in 1993. Uh, That cartel was toppled by the International Monetary Fund in an effort to boost global competition. Man, vanilla intrigue indeed. Yeah. Prices fell in the following years to $20 a kilo, a 70% decrease. Uh, This changed when market factors like the boom in premium ice creams by companies like Ben & Jerry's and Haagen-Dazs caused demand to increase some 50% from 1990 through 2000. Uh, this was immediately followed by another typhoon. Oh. Another typhoon struck in 2000, coupled with political instability in regions that grew vanilla and bad weather in general. This caused the price of vanilla to shoot up to $500 a kilo in 2004. By 2005, the price was back down to $40 a kilo. Due to a number of factors like more countries trying their hand at vanilla production and increased demand for imitation vanilla. But as you can see, this is a product subject to some uh, serious pricing fluctuation. Oh, yeah. And that's actually been particularly intense in the past few years because the uh, the demand for artificial vanillin um, and also taxation of natural vanilla by the government was so great during the 1990s that orchid farmers in uh, Madagascar abandoned their plantations. Uh, real vanilla was not worth the cost of production to them. This happened in Mexico, too, from the 1970s on. Oh, wages were so much higher in citrus and oil industries there that, yeah, vanilla production just did not make sense. That flipped when those big companies like Nestle started buying up pods again. As suddenly, there wasn't nearly enough supply to meet demand, and the price skyrocketed, especially because all those farms had shut down, and it can take three to five years for a new or rebuilt production to start producing pods. This has created some really bizarre economic effects. The uh, National Central Bank of Madagascar actually ran out of the large bills that vanilla traders used to pay farmers with. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Crops being stolen from fields, some farmers harvesting pods too early to produce good quality vanilla, and weather 
is still an issue, um, especially given the rate at which climate change is messing up our weather patterns. Mm. A cyclone that hit Madagascar this March of 2017 destroyed about a third of the vanilla crop, uh, pushing (sighs) demand and prices even higher. All of this means that some researchers are working on developing genetically modified orchids that would produce more vanillin to help offset some of these fluctuations. And um, another interesting science thing. Oh, yeah. A 2006 study found that vanilla was effective in preventing bacteria quorum sensing, which is something bacteria do that um, coordinates behaviors like virulence and antibiotic resistance. So scientists think that vanilla intake could be useful in preventing bacterial pathogenesis. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Very, very, very early but still. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quorum sensing is really fascinating. It's basically bacterial communication and lots of great implications there. That is, It was really cool to uh, run into. Like I said, you never know what a topic is going to take you. Who knew we'd be talking about bacteria quorum sensing in vanilla episode? Not me. But that brings us to the present with vanilla everywhere and all kinds of things and our appetite for it apparently unending. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's the story of vanilla. It is. It is uh, quite a twisty-turny one. Uh, and I, I, you guys probably know, but the reason that at the beginning of the podcast, why uh, vanilla is like vanilla, bland, indistinct, whatever, is because it's, it's everywhere, but also because it's usually that imitation stuff or not. Right. Yeah. We got in a discussion with one of your friends about this. and He had some strong feelings about how uh, <laughs> vanilla was very good and not vanilla at all. Yeah. You got to watch out. <laughs> Cook industry, Those. food industry friends. <laughs> yeah, fine. They, they they have opinions. Chefs have opinions sometimes. It's weird. Very weird. <laughs> Speaking of opinions. Oh, yeah. Brings us to listener mail. Yay. Yes. Els wrote in after our ramen episode. When I was in middle school, the most popular snack around was to take a brick of instant ramen, crush it up a little in the packet, and then sprinkle the seasoning over it. We'd eat the little chunks of dry ramen with seasoning like chips. It used to be a school black market. Whoever uh, <laughs> could bring the best flavor could sell it for like $3 a pack. What? Which is a lot of money for a 12-year-old and also pretty big price <laughs> increase. Right? Oh, that's great. The kids who brought the lime chili shrimp made bank. Wow. The school got so fed up with it that they started buying cases of ramen from Costco and selling each flavor of ramen for like 50 cents. And that effectively killed the ramen black market, though not the amount of dry ramen consumed. Where this trend of eating dry dry ramen came from, I have no idea. I'm convinced someone was playing a trick on a gullible friend, and it just kept going (laughs) until the whole school was doing it. Never heard of anyone else doing it, but I visited recently, and they still sell the ramen for 75 cents. Huh. That's that's hilarious to me. In college, I, I said in a ramen episode, I pretty much lived off of ramen, but when I didn't have time to cook it, I would just... Like people would see me walking around campus with the block, with a block, and just, just chewing it. it. Oh wow! It was a sad time. In, oh, dude, in my life. Yeah, uh, I wasn't even putting the seasoning on it, so I these twelve year olds were <laughs> a step ahead of me in that oh. in that regard. Well, you know, we all do what we have to. Yeah, and apparently, at one point in my life, that was eating dry blocks of dry ramen <laughs> I'm, unseasoned. I'm glad that you've come a little bit further than that. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Savvy also sent us this note about our Vegemite episode. The amazing thing about Marmite is its marketing scheme. The owners obviously know it's weird, and even though I'm now 27, I still vividly remember the commercials for it from when I was a child. Their phrase was Marmite. 
You either love it or you hate it. And the commercials consisted of things like a man kindly giving a homeless man a sandwich only to have it thrown at him a few moments later when the man realizes it has Marmite in it. Or my personal favorite, a man wakes up in the morning and smells his milk and makes a face realizing it's rancid. Then he accidentally uses the knife his girlfriend spread Marmite with to butter his toast, chokes, and begins to chug the rotten milk to get the taste of the Marmite out of his mouth. Again, this was an ad for Marmite. Genius. I still laugh when I think of them. That's pretty excellent. <laughs> I mean, you got to embrace. You got to embrace. Got to know you, who you are. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much to both of them for writing us. You can write us as well. Our email is foodstuff at howstuffworks.com. Uh, we're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at FoodStuffHSW. You can also find us on Instagram at FoodStuff. Thank you so much to our audio engineer, Tristan McNeil and uh, Dylan Fagan. And we hope to hear from you, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park! Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.